0: Section 39, being Chapter 10, Parts 7, 8, and 9 of A History of Greece, to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece, to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. By John Bagnault Bury. Chapter 10, Part 7 Warfare in Western Greece Tragic Events in Corcyra While the attention of Greece was directed upon the fortunes of Plataea and Mytilene, warfare had been carried on in the regions of the west, and the reputation of the Athenian navy had risen higher. The Ambraciots had persuaded Sparta to send an expedition against Acarnania. If the Peloponnesians firmly established themselves there, they might win the whole Athenian alliance in the west. Cnemus was sent with a thousand hoplites in advance. He made an attempt on the important town of Stratus, but was forced to retreat. Meanwhile a Peloponnesian fleet was to sail from Corinth to support him. It consisted of forty-seven ships, and had to pass Formio, who was guarding the entrance of the Corinthian Gulf, with only twenty. Formio let them sail into the open sea, preferring to attack them there. By skilful manoeuvres he crowded the enemy's ships into a narrow space. A morning breeze helped him by knocking the ships against one another, and when they were in confusion the Athenians dashed in and gained a complete victory. The government at Sparta could not understand how skill could gain such an advantage over far superior numbers. They sent commissioners to make an inquiry, and Cnemus was told that he must try again and be successful. A reorganized Peloponnesian fleet took up a position at Panormus in Achaea, and Formio was stationed at Rion on the opposite coast. The object of Cnemus was to lure or drive the enemy into the gulf, where their skill in handling their ships would be less decisive than in the open sea. With this purpose he sailed towards Naupactus, and Formio, in alarm, sailed along the coast to protect the place. As the Athenian ships moved near the land in single file, the enemy suddenly swung round and rowed down upon them at their utmost speed. The eleven ships, which were nearest Naupactus, had time to run round the right Peloponnesian wing and escape. The rest were driven aground. Twenty Peloponnesian vessels on the right were in the meantime pursuing the eleven Athenian, which were making for Naupactus. A Leucadian ship was far in advance of the others, closely pursuing an Athenian which was lagging behind. Near Naupactus, a merchant vessel lay in their way, anchored in the deep water. The Athenian trireme rowed round it, struck her pursuer amidships, and sank her. This brilliant exploit startled the Peloponnesians, who were coming up singing a paean of victory. The front ships dropped oars and waited for the rest. The Athenians, who had already reached Naupactus, saw the situation, and immediately bore down and gained another complete victory. If this able admiral Formio had lived, he might have extended Athenian influence considerably in western Greece, but after a winter expedition which he made in Acarnania, he silently drops out of history, and, as we find his son Asopius sent out in the following summer at the request of the Acarnanians, we must conclude that his career had been cut short by death. Asopius made an unsuccessful attempt on Oeniadae and was slain in a descent on Lucas, The peninsula of Lucas and the Achananian Oeniadai, girt by morasses at the mouth of the river Achelous, were two main objectives of Athenian enterprise in the west. Lucas was never won, but four years later, Oeniadai was forced to join the Athenian alliance. Corchyra herself was to be the next scene of war in the Ionian Sea. The prisoners whom Corinth had taken in the Epidamnian War had been released on the understanding that they were to win over Corcyra from the Athenian alliance, and their intrigues were effectual in dividing the state and producing a sanguinary revolution. The question between the Peloponnesian and the Athenian alliance was closely bound up with the cleavage between the oligarchical and the democratic party. The intriguers in the Corinthian interest and their faction formed a conspiracy to overthrow the democratic constitution. Their first step was to prosecute Pethias, the leader of the people, on the charge of scheming to make Corcyra a subject of Athens. He was acquitted, and retorted by summoning their five richest men to take their trial for cutting vine-poles in the sanctuaries of Zeus and Alcinous. They were fined a stator for each pole such a heavy fine, that the culprits sat as suppliants in the sanctuary, imploring that they might pay by installments. The prayer was refused, and in desperation they rushed into the senate-house and slew Pethius and sixty others who were with him. The oligarchy now had the upper hand, and they attacked the people who fled to the Acropolis and the Helaic harbour. The other harbour, which looks towards the mainland, along with the agora and the lower parts of the city, were held by the oligarchs. Next day, reinforcements came to both sides, to the people from other parts of the island, and to the oligarchs from the mainland. Fighting was soon resumed, and the people had the advantage. In order to bar their way to the arsenal, the oligarchs set fire to the houses and buildings in the neighbourhood of the Agora. Next day, twelve Athenian ships under Nicostratus arrived from Naupactus. He induced the two parties to come to an agreement, but the democrats persuaded him to leave five Athenian ships to ensure the preservation of order, for they did not trust their opponents. Nicostratus was to take five Corkyrian ships instead, and the crews of them were chosen from the oligarchs. They were in fact to be hostages for the behaviour of their fellows, but they feared they might be sent to Athens and fled to the refuge of a temple nicostratus could not induce them to stir the people regarded this distrust as a proof of criminal designs and armed anew the rest of the oligarchs then fled to the temple of hera but the democrats induced them to cross over to an islet off the coast four or five days later a peloponnesian fleet of fifty-three ships arrived under alcidas who had just returned from his expedition to ionia In a naval engagement outside the harbour, the Corcyreans fought badly, and the Athenians were forced to retreat. But the Peloponnesians did not follow up their success, and soon afterwards, hearing that an Athenian armament of sixty ships was on its way, returned home. The democratic party was now in a position to wreak vengeance on its foes, who had gratuitously disturbed the peace of the city, and sought to submit it to the yoke of its ancient enemy. The most vindictive and inhuman passions had been roused in the people by the attempt of the oligarchs on their liberty, and they now gave vent to these passions without regard to honour or policy. The four hundred suppliants had returned from the island, and were again under the protection of Hera. Fifty of them were persuaded to come forth to take their trial, and were executed. The rest, seeing their fate, aided each other in committing suicide some hung themselves on the trees in the sacred enclosure. Eurymedon arrived with the Athenian fleet and remained seven days. During this time the Corkyreans slew all whom they suspected of being opposed to the democracy, and many victims were sacrificed to private enmity. Every form of death was to be seen, and everything, and more than everything, that commonly happens in revolutions, happened then. The father slew the son, and the suppliants were torn from the temples and slain near them. Some of them were even walled up in the temple of Dionysus, and there perished. To such extremes of cruelty did revolution go, and this seemed to be the worst of revolutions, because it was the first. Eurymedon looked on and did not intervene. While the democracy cannot be excused for these horrible excesses, the fact remains that the guilt of causing the revolution rests entirely with the oligarchs. The chief victims of the democratic fury deserve small compassion. They had set the example of violence. The occurrences at Corcyra made a profound impression in Greece, reflected in the pages of Thucydides that historian has used the episode as the text for deep comments on the revolutionary spirit which soon began to disturb the states of the Greek world. Party divisions were encouraged and aggravated by the hope or fear of foreign intervention, the oligarchs looking to the Lacedaemonians and the Democrats to the Athenians. In time of peace these party struggles would have been far less bitter. This acute observation is illustrated by a famous modern instance, the French Revolution, where the worst outrages of the revolutionists were provoked by foreign intervention. In that great revolution too, we can verify the Greek historian's analysis of the effect of the revolutionary spirit when it runs wild on the moral nature of men. The revolutionists "'determined to outdo the report of all who had preceded them "'by the ingenuity of their enterprises "'and the activity of their revenges. "'The meaning of words had no longer the same relation to things, "'but was changed by them as they thought proper. "'Reckless daring was held to be loyal courage. "'Prudent delay was the excuse of a coward. "'Moderation was the disguise of unmanly weakness. "'To know everything was to do nothing.' Frantic energy was the true quality of a man. The lover of violence was always trusted, and his opponent suspected. It was dangerous to be quiet and neutral. The citizens who were of neither party fell a prey to both. Either they were disliked because they held aloof, or men were jealous of their surviving. The laws of heaven, as well as of civilized societies, were set aside without scruple amid the impatience of party spirit, the zeal of contention, the eagerness of ambition, and the cravings of revenge. These are some of the features in the delineation which Thucydides has drawn of the diseased condition of political life in the city-states of Greece. But the sequel of the Corcyrean revolution has still to be recorded. About 600 of the oligarchs, who escaped the vengeance of their opponents, established themselves on Mount Estoni, in the northeast of the island, and easily becoming masters of the open country, they harassed the inhabitants of the city for two years. Then an Athenian fleet, of which the ultimate destination was Sicily, under the command of Eurymedon and Sophocles, arrived at Corcyra, and the Athenians helped the democrats to storm the fort on Mount Estoni the oligarchs capitulated on condition that the Athenian people should determine how they were to be dealt with. The generals placed them in the island of Tucia, on the understanding that if any of their number attempted to escape, all should be deprived of the benefit of the previous agreement. But the democrats apprehended that the prisoners would not be put to death at Athens, and they were determined that their enemies should die. A foul trick was planned and carried out. Friends of the prisoners were sent over to the island, who said that the generals had resolved to leave them to the mercy of the Democrats, and advised them to escape, offering to provide a ship. A few of the captives fell into the trap, and were caught starting. All the prisoners were immediately handed over to the Corcyreans, who shut them up in a large building. They were taken out in batches of twenty, and made to march, tied together, down an avenue of hoplites who smote and wounded any whom they recognised as a personal enemy. Three batches had thus marched to execution, when their comrades in the building, who thought they were merely being removed to another prison, discovered the truth. They called on the Athenians, but they called in vain. Then they refused to stir out of the building, or let anyone enter. The Corcyrines did not attempt to force their way in. They tore off the roof, and hurled bricks and shot arrows from above. The captives, absolutely helpless, began to anticipate the purpose of their tormentors by taking their own lives, piercing their throats with the arrows which were shot down, or strangling themselves with the ropes of some beds which were in the place, or with strips of their own dress. The work of destruction went on during the greater part of the night. All was over when the day dawned, and the corpses were carried outside the city. Thus ended the Corcyrean revolution and the last scene was more ghastly even than the first. Eurymedon had less excuse on this occasion for refusing to intervene than he had two years before, since the prisoners had surrendered to the Athenians. It was said that he and Sophocles were ready to take advantage of the base trick of the democrats, because, unable to take the captives to Athens themselves, being bound for Sicily, they could not bear that the credit should fall to another. The oligarchical faction at Corcyra was now utterly annihilated, and the Democrats lived in peace. Part 8. Campaigns of Demosthenes in the West During the Corcyrian Troubles, the war had not rested in western Greece. An Athenian fleet under the general Demosthenes had sailed round the Peloponnesus and attacked the island of Lucas demosthenes was an enterprising commander distinguished from most of his fellows by a certain originality of conception on this occasion the idea of making a great stroke induced him to abandon the operations at Leucas, though the acarnanians thought he might have taken the town by blockade and engage in a new enterprise on the north of the corinthian gulf most of the lands between boeotia and the western sea phocis locris acharnania were friendly to athens but the hostility of the uncivilized Aetolians rendered land operations in those regions dangerous. Demosthenes conceived the plan of reducing the Aetolians so that he could then operate from the west on Doris and Boeotia, without the danger of his communications being threatened in the rear. His idea, in fact, was to bring the Corinthian Gulf into touch with the Euboean Sea. The Spartans, it is to be observed, were at this very time concerning themselves with the regions of Mount Eta. The appeals of Doris on the south and Trachis on the north of the Etean range for protection against the hostilities of the mountain tribes induced the Lacedaemonians to send out a colony which was established in Trachis, not very far from the pass of Thermopylae under the name of Heraclea. A colony was an unusual enterprise for Sparta, but Heraclea had a more important significance and intention than the mere defence of members of the Amphictyony. It was a place from which Euboea could be attacked, and it might prove of the greatest service as an intermediate station for carrying on operations in the Chalcidic peninsula. The fears which the foundation of Heraclea excited at Athens were indeed disappointed. Heraclea never flourished. It was incessantly assailed by the powerful hostility of the Thessalians, and its ruin was completed by the flagrantly unjust administration of the Lacedaemonian governors. But its first foundation was a serious event, and it seems highly probable that Demosthenes, when he formed his plan, had before his mind the idea of threatening Heraclea from the south by the occupation of Doris but his plan attractive as it might sound was eminently impracticable the preliminary condition was the subjugation of a mountainous country involving a warfare in which demosthenes was inexperienced and hoplites were at a great disadvantage the messenians of naupactus represented to him that Itolia, a land of unwalled villages could easily be reduced but the messenians had their own game to play they suffered from the hostilities of their aetolian neighbours and wanted to use the ambition of the athenian general for their own purpose the acarnanians who were deeply interested in the defeat of lucas were indignant with demosthenes for not prosecuting the blockade and refused to join him against Starting from Inion in Locris, the Athenians and some allies, not a large force, advanced into the country, hoping to reduce several tribes before they had time to combine. But the Aetolians had already learnt his plans and were already collecting a great force. The main chance of Demosthenes lay in the cooperation of the Ozolian Locrians, who knew the Aetolian country and mode of warfare, and were armed in the Aetolian fashion. Demosthenes committed the error of not waiting for them. He was constantly unable to deal with the Aetolian javelin men. At Aegition, rushing down from the hills, they wrought havoc among the invaders who had captured the town. A hundred and twenty Athenian hoplites fell, the very finest men whom the city of Athens lost during the war. Demosthenes did not dare to return to Athens he remained at naupactus and soon had an opportunity of retrieving his fame the lacedaemonians answered this invasion of Itolia by sending three thousand hoplites under eurylochus against naupactus five hundred of these troops came from heraclea the newly founded colony naupactus ill defended was barely saved by the energy of demosthenes who persuaded the Acarnanians to send reinforcements Eurylochus abandoned the siege and withdrew to the neighbourhood of Calydon and Pluron in southern Aetolia, for the purpose of joining the Ambraciates in an attack upon Argos. Winter had begun when the Ambraciates descended from the north into the Argive territory, and seized the fort of Olpi, which stands a little north of Argos, on a hill by the sea, and was once used as a hall of justice by the Achaeanian League demosthenes was asked by the acharnanians to be their leader in resisting this attack and a message for help was sent to twenty athenian vessels which were coasting off the peloponnesus the troops of eurylochus marched from the south across acharnania and joined their allies at ulpi the Athenian ships arrived in the Ambracian Gulf, and with the reinforcements which they brought, Demosthenes gave battle to the enemy between Olpi and Argos, and by a skillfully contrived ambuscade, annulled the advantage which they had in superior numbers. Eurylochus was slain, and the Peloponnesians delivered themselves from their perilous position between Argos and the Athenian ships by making a secret treaty with Demosthenes, in which the Ambraciots were not included. It was arranged that they should retreat stealthily, without explaining their intention to the Ambraciots. It was good policy on the part of Demosthenes, for by this treacherous act, the Lacedaemonians would lose their character in that part of Greece. The Peloponnesians crept out of Olpi one by one, pretending to gather herbs and sticks. As they got farther away, they stepped out more quickly, and then the Ambraciots saw what was happening and ran to overtake them. The Acarnanians slew about two hundred Ambraciots, and the Peloponnesians escaped into the land of Agria. But a heavier blow was in store for Ambracia. Reinforcements of that city, ignorant of the battle, were coming to Olpi. Demosthenes sent forward some of his troops to lie in ambush on their line of march, at Idomene, some miles north of Olpi. There are two peaks of unequal height. The higher was seized in advance by the men of Demosthenes. The Ambraciots, when they arrived, encamped on the lower. Demosthenes then advanced with the rest of his troops, and attacked the enemy at dawn, when they were still half asleep. Most were slain, and those who escaped at first found the mountain paths occupied. Thucydides says that during the first ten years of the war, no such calamity happened within so few days to any Hellenic state, and he does not give the numbers of those who perished because they would appear incredible in proportion to the size of the state. Demosthenes might have captured the city if he had pushed on, but the Acarnanians did not desire a permanent Athenian occupation at their doors. They were content that their neighbour was rendered harmless. A treaty of alliance for one hundred years was concluded between the Achananians with the Amphilochians of Argos and the Ambraciots. Neither side was to be required by the other to join against its own allies in the great war, but they were to help each other to defend their territories. Sometimes afterwards, Anactorion, then Oiniadei, were won over to the Athenian alliance. PART nine: NICIAS AND CLEON politics at athens the success against Ambracia compensated for the failure in aetolia and demosthenes could now return to athens his dashing style of warfare and his bold plans must have caused grave mistrust among the older more experienced and more commonplace commanders Nicias, the son of Nicaratus, who seems to have already won, without deserving, the chief place as a military authority at Athens, must have shaken his head over the doings of Demosthenes in the west. Nicias, a wealthy conservative slave-owner, who speculated in the silver mines of Laurion, was one of the mainstays of that party which was out of sympathy with the intellectual and political progress of Athens, and bitterly opposed to the new politicians like Cleon, who wielded the chief influence in the assembly. The ability of Nicias was irretrievably mediocre. He would have been an excellent subordinate officer, but he had not the qualities of a leader or a statesman. Yet he possessed a solid and abiding influence at Athens, through his impregnable respectability, his superiority to bribes, and his scrupulous superstition, as well as his acquaintance with the details of military affairs this homage paid to a mediocre respectability throws light on the character of the athenian democracy and the strength of the conservative party nicias belonged to the advocates of peace and was well disposed to sparta so that for several reasons he might be regarded as a successor to Cimon. but his political opponents though they constantly defeated him on particular measures never permanently undermined his influence he understood the political value of gratifying in small ways those prejudices of his fellow-citizens which he shared himself and he spared no expense in the religious service of the state as thucydides says he thought too much of divination and omens he had an opportunity of displaying his religious devotion and his liberality on the occasion of the purification of delos which was probably undertaken to induce apollo to avert a recurrence of the plague the dead were removed from all the tombs and it was ordained that henceforth no one should die or give birth to a child on the sacred island those who were near to either should cross over to The Athenians revived in a new form the old festival, celebrated in the Homeric hymn to Apollo, the festival to which the long-robed Ionians gathered, and made thee glad, O Phoebus, with boxing, dancing, and song. The games were restored, and horse-races introduced for the first time. Four years later the purification was perfected by the removal of all the inhabitants, and the Persians accorded them a refuge at Adramition. Conducting such ceremonies, Nicias was in his right place. Unfortunately, such excellence had an undue weight, and it should be noted that this is one of the drawbacks of a city-state. In a large modern state, the private life and personal opinions of a statesman have small importance, and are not weighed by his fellow countrymen in the scale against his political ability, save in rare exceptional cases. But in a small city the statesman's private life is always before men's eyes, and his political position is distinctly affected, according as he shocks or gratifies their prejudices and predilections. A mediocre man is able, by judicious conforming, to attain an authority to which his brains give him no claim. Pericles was indeed so strong that his influence could survive attacks on his morality and his orthodoxy. Nicias maintained his position because he never shocked the public sense of decorum and religion by associating with an aspasia or an anaxagoras. The Athenian people combined in a remarkable degree the capacity of appreciating both respectability and intellectual power. Their progressive instinct was often defeated by conservative prejudices. Though Nicias was one of those Athenians who were not in full sympathy with the policy of Pericles, and approved still less of the policy of his successors, he was thoroughly loyal to the democracy. But an oligarchical party still existed, secretly active, and always hoping for an opportunity to upset the democratic constitution. This party, or a section of it, seems to have been known at this time as the Young Party, It included, among others, who will appear on the stage of history some years later, the orator Antiphon, who was now coming into public notice in connection with some sensational lawsuits. Against the dark designs of this party, as well as against the misconduct of generals, Cleon was constantly on the watch. He could describe himself in the assembly as the people's watchdog but at present these oligarchs were harmless so long as no disaster from without befell athens they had no chance all they could do was to make common cause with the other enemies of cleon and air their discontent in anonymous political pamphlets chance has preserved us a work of this kind written in one of these years by an athenian of oligarchical views its subject is the athenian democracy and the writer professes to answer on behalf of the Athenians the criticisms which the rest of the Greeks pass on Athenian institutions. I do not like democracy myself, he says, but I will show that from their point of view the Athenians manage their state wisely and in the manner most conducive to the interests of democracy. The defence is for the most part a veiled indictment. It displays remarkable acuteness with occasional triviality the writer has grasped and taken to heart one deep truth, the close connection of the sea-power of Athens with its advanced democracy. It is just, he remarks, that the poor and the common folk should have more influence than the noble and rich, for it is the common folk that row the ships and make the city powerful, not the hoplites and the well-born and the worthy. Highly interesting is his observation that slaves and metics enjoyed what he considered unreasonable freedom and immunity at Athens. Why, you may not strike one of them, nor will a slave make way for you in the streets. And his malicious explanation is interesting too. The common folk dress so badly that you might easily mistake one of them for a slave or a metic, and then there would be a to-do if you struck a citizen.' There is perhaps a touch of malice, too, in the statement that the commercial empire of Athens, which brought to her wharves the delicacies of the world, was affecting her language as well as her habits of life, and filling it with foreign words. An important feature in the political history of Athens in these years was the divorce of the military command from the leadership in the assembly, and the want of harmony between the chief strategoi and the leaders of the people. The tradesmen who swayed the assembly had no military training or capacity, and they were always at a disadvantage when opposed by men who spoke with the authority of a strategos on questions of military policy. Until recent years the post of general had been practically confined to men of property and good family, but a change ensued, perhaps soon after the death of Pericles, and men of the people were elected. The comic poet Eupolis, in a play called The Deems, In which the great leaders Miltiades and Themistocles Aristides and Pericles are summoned back to life that they may see and deplore degenerate Athens meditates thus on the contrast between the latter day generals and their predecessors. Men of lineage fair and of wealthy estate once our generals were the noble and the great whom as the gods we adored and as gods they guided and guarded the state. "'Things are not as then. Ah, how different far! A manner of men our new generals are. The rascals and refuse our city now chooses to lead us to war!' Cleon was a man of brains and resolution. Hitherto his main activity had been in the law courts, where he called officers to account and maintained the safeguards of popular government. If he was to be more than an opposition leader— he must be ready to undertake the post of strategos, and supported by the experience of an able colleague, he need not disgrace himself. An understanding, therefore, between Cleon and the enterprising Demosthenes was one which seemed to offer advantages to both. Acting together, they might damage both the political and the military position of Nicias. But before we pass to a famous enterprise which was probably the result of such an understanding, we must note the great cost which the continuation of the war entailed. More than four thousand talents had already been borrowed from the temple treasures, and though steps had been taken to increase revenue when Lesbos revolted, the drain was continuing, and the end was not in sight. Cleon seems to have been particularly concerned with the financing of the war, and it was no doubt under his influence that it was decided to strengthen the position at the expense of the Allies. The decree providing for the new assessment was passed in the Assembly after the dramatic success at Sphacteria, but the main lines had probably been worked out by Cleon earlier. We possess numerous fragments of the stone recording the decree, and below it the list of cities with their new assessment. The main character is clear. Since the tribute has become too small, they, the jurors, shall join with the council in making the current assessments. They shall not assess a lower tribute on any city than it was paying before, unless, because of impoverishment of the country, there is a manifest inability to pay more. These instructions were faithfully followed, Many cities had their tribute doubled or trebled; few escaped increase. Cities that had long discontinued payment were included, and more than one hundred names were added of cities which are not known to have paid before, including a large group of cities in the Euxine and the stubborn island of Milos. The total of the assessment by these drastic measures was increased to nearly one thousand five hundred talents but this total is in part illusory, for many of the cities waited on events, and in the following years Athens was not able to display the necessary force overseas. Borrowings, though on a reduced scale, had to continue. A sharp increase in tribute was necessary to maintain the offensive, but it was an act of ruthless imperialism. It increased discontent among the Allies, who found sympathy from some of Cleon's opponents in Athens. While the Allies were to be more heavily burdened, Cleon raised the jurors' fee from two to three obols. It would be a mistake to consider this measure a mere bid for popularity. We shall hardly be wrong in regarding it as an attempt to relieve the distress which the yearly invasions of Attica and the losses of the harvests inflicted upon the poorer citizens. End of Part 9